Welcome to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhamford.org. My name is Peter. I'm the senior pastor here at FBH. We're glad that you're here. Uh, we're kicking off a brand new series this morning called With Everything. Um, I couldn't ever remember the name of the series because we changed it like four different times as we were trying to figure out what it is that we, uh, we wanted to talk about. Um, but, uh, but this is going to be a five-week jaunt, and we're not going to be in a book of the Bible this time. We are going to be taking uh, different sections of the Bible and applying them to the idea of what is worship. What does that look like? Um, and so as we were kind of talking through it and that sort of thing, we're in our staff meeting on Tuesday, and uh, our staff meetings, we do a bunch of stuff. We, uh, we start and we have a book discussion on a book that we've been walking through, and then after that we do prayer for people in our congregation who are sick or, or um, uh, got injured or anything like that. Um, so we, we take some time to, uh, to pray, and then after we pray, we talk about the Sunday that just happened, and then we talk about the Sunday that's going to happen, and then we do some calendaring stuff, and then uh, check in with everyone, that sort of thing. And so we were talking about last Sunday, and I'm having a conversation um, with, uh, with Brian Asbury, Brian Guy, Jeff is there, uh, Melissa O'Reek was in there, um, and I was just talking about, man, the worship team, they are doing so well. I just really feel like you guys have hit your stride, right, been talking about that um, with them, and, and then all of a sudden, Pastor Jeff from out of nowhere, and this is usually how it goes, Brian and Brian always disagree on things, I play referee, and then Pastor Jeff will just take a bomb and throw it in the middle of our conversations, okay? That's how it goes. Um, but when Pastor Jeff talks, he's the type of guy, when Pastor Jeff talks, you want to listen to the things that he has to say, right? And so Pastor Jeff, um, all of a sudden, he just had to interrupt the conversation. And he said, you know that what, what you're talking about is only part of worship, right? Like you understand that, uh, that, that the worship portion that you're talking about, you mean singing is what you mean to say. Um, and, and I was like, yeah, okay, Jeff, we get it. We roll our eyes at him. But I do it all the time, and I know many of you probably do it as well, right? When we're talking about the idea of worship, you're talking about Brian and the worship team who are coming up here, and they are leading us in worship through song specifically. Jeff does a really, really good job at saying, like, why don't you continue to worship with us in song or in music or whatever it, uh, it may be. And actually, Jeff has said, you know, what we should really do is we should really just say, when people walk in, why don't you stand up and continue to worship with us as like a call to worship? And I know for some of you, it would be fine because some of you walked in like 20 minutes late, right? And you guys are like, oh, did they already worship? We should continue to worship right now? Yeah, we should continue to worship right now. But for others of you, I know that you were like waiting in that long period between first and second service. You're two donuts deep and you're way too caffeinated. You're like, let's go. What do you mean continue to worship? We haven't started to, uh, to worship yet. But the idea of worship really is, is, is we need to worship with the entirety of our being, right? But we all do it. Sunday morning, we come in here, we call the music worship. We call the teaching part of the sermon, or we call the teaching part the sermon, and we never really fold our, our, our worship into the teaching time, because the societal norm within the church is that worship is the singing portion of church, of what it is that we do. And so in this series, we're going to be taking a long look at what worship actually is. Like I said, it's about five weeks. It's going to hit our, right into our, uh, our Christmas series. And I'm actually, yeah, you heard that right, five weeks until our Christmas series for those of you who are like, what? It's still summer. No, it's 40 degrees this morning. Um, so that being said, I'm really excited about this, this series, though, because the fact that actually we're, like I said, five weeks and um, three of them are going to be preached by Pastor Brian, 
other Pastor Brian. I'll let you decide who other Pastor Brian is. Uh, and Pastor Jeff, and I'm going to take two of them. So all of our pastors get an opportunity to preach on, um, on, on this idea. But that being said, is um, uh, we, we are going to take a look at what worship actually is. Because if we ask people on the street, they may tell us that worship is what you do on a Sunday morning, right? And many of us would probably agree with that. Yeah, worship is what it is on, on Sunday morning. For some of us, worship is what we do when the preacher isn't preaching, right? It occurs usually during the first half of our time together on Sunday morning. For some people, worship only happens when we feel it, like when we feel a really good song or good music, and it's like, oh, I'm feeling the worship right now. And so because of that, I'm going to raise my hands. I'm going to do whatever, right? And so the question should be, though, what does worship really actually look like? What should worship be? In a very simple way, worship is recognizing the worth of someone or something, that recognition of it. And so since God created us for himself, and he is a being of infinite worth, then we should worship him, But beyond that, maybe a more important question is what does God desire in our worship of him? What should our worship look like? And that's the main issue that largely we're going to be covering in this series. And maybe some of you can relate to this. When I was younger, I grew up uh, at Merced First Baptist Church, right? Born and raised uh, a Baptist a Baptist kid. And so what it would look like for me on Sunday morning is we would wake up and um, we would go to Sunday school. And then after Sunday school, we would go to big church, right? Any, any of you here ever been to big church before, right? Yeah. Okay. Congrats. You're all in big church. This is what we called big church on a regular basis. And so we'd go to big church and I would be with my mom and my dad and we would sit there. And me and my brother were there, usually not next to each other because we'd be too disruptive or whatever. And so um, I would be sitting there and I distinctly remember my first opportunity to worship in song, um, or at least the trend of worshiping in song. And so we'd be sitting there, and I just remember the chairs that we had were old and ugly and really, really gross. They were like this brownish mustard yellow chairs with hardly any padding on them, right? And I just remember staring at them thinking, these are really ugly chairs. And knowing that as a five-year-old, that tells you how ugly the chairs actually uh actually were. But then this guy would come on stage and he was in charge of music. He was the, the worship worship pastor or music pastor. And he would tell us, okay, there's a book. There's a book in the chair in front of you. Go ahead and grab that book. I want you to flip to page number, whatever page number it was. And we are going to sing verses one, two, and four. We never sang verse three. I don't know why that worship pastors back then hated verse three, but they hated verse three. So we would sing one, two, and four, and then he would wave his hand and everybody would start singing, right? This is the way that, that worship through song looked to me as I, was, as I was younger and as I was growing up. My earliest, earliest ministry of Christian worship music. And we call it worship all the time. I still call the musical portion of church service worship on a regular basis, right? Why? Why should our worship be more than just Music, because our worship should be an expression of the totality of our being. Our worship should not be a musical segment that some of you love and some of you tolerate, depending on the stylistic choices we make for a Sunday morning. That is not what worship is. But this weekend isn't specifically about about music. It's about our expression of worship throughout our entire lives. 
And we're going to go through a slightly different passage this morning than maybe many of you would equate with the idea of worship. We're going to be in John chapter 4. And so if you have your Bibles, if you got an app, you got an iPad, you got a touchscreen TV, whatever it is you have, go ahead and pull that out. John chapter 4, get to that. We're going to get to that in a second. And I'm going to summarize the front half of it, and then we're going to get to it. For most of us, this is actually a very familiar passage. This is the passage of the woman at the well. Okay? And so a lot of us are like understand there's a Samaritan woman, different things going on. I'm going to summarize that point, and then we're going to going to get into it. So in this passage, Jesus, he leaves this place called Judea, and he heads down to a place called Galilee, right? And he, pass, he passes through this region that is called Samaria. And he comes to this town in Samaria called Sychar. And so while he's in Sychar, Jesus, he's tired from his journey, right? They're walking a whole lot of miles. It's probably hot. So he stops at this well. The well is called Jacob's Well. He stops at the well at about noon. And, and while he's at the well, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And so as Jesus saw her at the well, Jesus says to her, give me a drink, right? Pretty, pretty normal. For any of us who may be tired or thirsty, this might seem like a completely reasonable thing to do for a person who is thirsty and a person who is drawing water for Jesus to simply ask that of her, okay? But this was actually remarkable given the, the situation of the time. The woman was probably shocked that a Jewish man, and specifically a Jewish rabbi, would speak that openly to a Samaritan woman. And so not only did the Jews avoid contact with the Samaritans, but Jewish men avoided speaking with women in public in general, okay? So this is kind of double dose of taboo is what we have going on. Why? Because the Samaritans were the Jewish people's northern neighbor. They lived just below Galilee, but the Jews and the Samaritans weren't friendly to one another. They did not like one another. John actually wrote that the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. Okay? They just didn't, they didn't hang out. Why? The Jews probably treated Samaritans pretty terribly as the Jews considered Samaritans half-breed descendants of pagans. Their blood was unclean, right? That's what they considered them. And so they didn't hang out. And so the Jews wouldn't have conversed with them in public, much less asked them for a drink of water. But Jesus' attitude here toward this group is actually radically different than what we would see in, in, in any sort of history regarding the Jews and the Samaritans. And so the lady, she's, she's astonished by, by all of this, that this Jewish rabbi would talk to her at all. And in her astonishment, Jesus actually tells the Samaritan woman that if she knew who he really was, she would have asked him for water and he would have given her, quote, living water. So again, I'm summarizing this whole thing. And so Jesus, he, or, or this woman, she takes Jesus literally and misunderstands what Jesus is saying. And you can understand why she would misunderstand what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, hey, give me some water. Also, if you knew who I was, I'll give you living water. And then she's like, what is this living water you speak of? I want some of that living water. Can you please give me that, uh, that living water? Hey, Jesus is speaking in metaphors here. We understand that on this side of the story. But being a person, if you put yourself into her shoes, you would understand where it is that she was coming from. Here's what we need to know, right? Jesus frequently spoke in terms of the visible, physical world to teach about spiritual issues. And so this is Jesus teaching her about a spiritual issue here. For instance, Jesus, he refers to himself as the bread of life, right? Physical, tangible world explaining spiritual issues. He refers to our, our spiritual awakening, the idea of acknowledging Jesus as Lord and Savior as being born again, something that we can all relate to, the idea of being born. So Jesus tells a Samaritan woman that if she had this living water, she would never thirst again. This would have been a big deal. 
Okay? I know for many of you, you're farmers or blue-collar workers, or you work in the ag industry or whatever, and so water rights and water issues and droughts and all of those things, that's a really, really big deal to all of us, right? We get that. And then all of a sudden we have more moderate water than we know what to do with. And then we're like, we, what do we do with all this water? We're just used to functioning in a drought, right? So the difference between our concern with water and their concern with water was actually much different. They were in the middle of a desert. Now, as much as water, like it, 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 we depend on it for our livelihood and all of that stuff, this would have been the difference between life and death for these people living where they were. The idea of having a well, the idea of having fresh water to be able to draw would have been the difference between life and, and death. And so she's intrigued, obviously, by this idea of living water. And so the Samaritan woman, she asked Jesus to, to give her the water so she would never be thirsty again, right? And all of us would ask for this. Give me that water. I never have to worry about water. But Jesus, he tells her about this living water, but it's not what she expected. Here's where things get more interesting. And you guys are, I know, you guys are like, what does this have to do with worship? I'll get there, okay? I promise I'll get there. Here's where things get more interesting, okay? The Samaritan woman's encounter at the well. So far, Jesus has asked her for water, and he then intrigued her with a statement about living water that would forever quench her thirst. And then she asked for this water, and Jesus then confronts this woman with issues that she's walking through in her own life. So it's a really, really weird conversation. Can I have some water? And then he says, I'll give you living water. And then she's like, yes, give me that living water. And he's like, now tell me about your life. That's weird. Usually it would just be like, thank you, would be the response. But Jesus pushes in a little bit harder. It picks up for you guys in verse, verse 16. It says, he told her, go call your husband and come back. She says in verse 17, I have no husband. She replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What have you just said? What you have just said is quite true. So it's really interesting. She, she asked for water that would forever quench her thirst, right? And Jesus asked about her husband, which again, weird. Interesting though, the woman, she, she responds to Jesus with some of the truth. She says, tell me about your husband. And she says, okay, well, I don't, I don't actually have a husband. And she says, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and the person that you're now living with isn't actually your husband at all. So she had some, some truth. Some, she included some of the truth here. And so she had had five husbands, like she said, and we don't know if they died or they divorced her or whatever it may have been. We don't understand the situation with the guy that she's living with now. All we can kind of garner from it is there's some sort of immorality going on in her life. There is some sort of sin nature that is currently happening in her life. And so Jesus, Jesus implies here that merely living together does not constitute a marriage. We would agree with Jesus in that statement, in all statements, but I'm talking about this one. So, but if we are going to receive the life-giving water, the life-giving water of the Spirit, it always includes a correct examination of ourselves. So when we're going to the idea of worship, when we're going to the idea of worshiping Jesus, it always has to start with an understanding of who we are, an understanding of, of where we are falling short, and being honest and truthful about that in our own lives, in our own hearts. It's kind of like the idea of like, you know, you're putting on weight and, and you're eating bad, and you guys are like, why, why are you calling me fat right now? Okay, so you're putting on weight, 
right? You're not working out. You're not doing the things you're supposed to. And when you're doing those things, what is it that you avoid at all costs? The scale, right? You're like, you know what? The scale knows the truth. And as long as I don't step on that scale, I don't actually need to know whatever that number says. So I'm just going to kind of shove the scale out of the way. I'm going to push it under the counter, make sure that I never have to step on it or anything like that. Right? Because we have a hard time confronting the actual truth of different situations. And so that's what's happening here. She is getting called out to the truth of a situation. Why? So, Because Jesus is about to call her to worship in spirit and in truth. And he needs her to understand and come to terms with the issues and the sin that she has in her life. So she, Jesus is like, you know what? You're right when you say you don't have a husband. You've actually had five and you're living with a dude right now. Here's the mirror. Look in the mirror. Understand your own spiritual state. And so one of the things that we got to understand when it comes to our worship and full worship of God is we have to surrender all of ourselves to him. And by nature, we tend to resist it. We don't like it. It doesn't feel good when somebody calls us out. We're really good at calling out other people's sin in the form of gossip and then in the form of prayer requests, but we're not great at calling out and being okay with people calling out our own sin. Right? Case in point, my job oftentimes feel like I feel like a principal sometimes. Right? You ever get called into the principal's office and then like there's those big chairs, you have to sit in a chair and you're just like, he's gonna tell me what I did wrong. I don't know what I did wrong, but he's gonna tell me I did something wrong. Anytime I wanna have a conversation with somebody and I don't want other people to hear, where do I say we should meet? Let's meet in my office, right? As soon as the pastor says, Hey, can we have a meeting and can you come sit down in my office? They sit down and my walls are kind of stark white, and my, my chairs are kind of low and uncomfortable, and then I have my pastor's chair, and my pastor's chair is like a little bit higher than their chair. It's kind of a power move, right? I'm just kidding. I didn't do it on purpose. But, but people have mentioned it to me before, and I'm like, just deal with it, okay? But then they sit there, and they're just like, I feel like I'm getting called into the principal's office. I'm like, what do you need to confess, right? Like, I'm just like, I don't, I didn't, I don't have anything that I know that we need to talk about or an issue that we need to talk about, but people get terrified. Why do they get scared? They get scared because they think that, that, that in some way, shape, or form that I know the sin that they're dealing with and I'm going to call them out because of it, or I'm going to call them onto the carpet because of it. We don't like it. We don't like that, that feeling, and so the Samaritan's woman's next question, it, it, it really is kind of a weird conversation in the way that it forms because, because Jesus is like, I'm going to tell you about your husband. And then all of a sudden she talks, starts talking about the idea of worship. And so, so she, she essentially says, have you ever believed or, or, or been told that you, she didn't say this, have you ever personally believed or been told that you come to church to worship God? Have you been told that? Have you understood that, right, while we're at church? The way I usually hear it is uh, people will, will, like, say a bad word in front of me at church. And then the spouse will hit them and like, you're at church. You can't cuss at church. I'm like, well, hold on just a second. You know Jesus doesn't live here, right? Like, he's everywhere. The Holy Spirit is, is everywhere. And so it's actually not entirely true. The only place that you worship is church for one we don't come to church because or we don't come to church because we are indeed the church anyone who has repented of sin confessed uh, uh, Jesus Christ as lord is part of the church the body of Christ right secondly we do not come to worship god at least we do not begin worshiping god with the church at the church we should be worshiping god before we get here in the same way that jeff said we should tell people why don't you stand and continue to worship today 
It's that idea. But we'll look at that aspect of worship later. For now, I want to address the issue of where we should worship God. And there's a, a place, des- is there a place designated for worshiping him? The answer is actually, might surprise some of you, the answer is yes. This is what it says starting in verse 19. It says, sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet, because Jesus had just called her out, right? Five husbands living with the guy. She's like, okay, obviously this dude's a prophet. Nobody's going to know that except a prophet. I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, that Jesus replied, or Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. So the issue here is the Samaritans, like this woman was, worshipped God in a different place than the Jews did. So they had built this temple, their temple, the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim. It was their holy mountain. It was their place they went to worship, their holy place. That's where they would go to worship God. The Jews, they built their own temple. They built their own temple on a mountain in Jerusalem. This was their holy place. But here we see Jesus argued with a Samaritan woman. If Jesus had argued with the Samaritan woman about where the right place to worship was, the woman may not have faced her actual sin and the things that she needed to clean up. They actually, the way that Jesus responded to her is very, very instructive. So Jesus, he returns the conversation away from the place of worship to what the nature of worship actually is. He basically said that the place of worship is not important. The place of worship is not Jerusalem. The place of worship is not in Samaria. The place of worship is not First Baptist Hanford. It's somewhere else. So the question then becomes, where should our place of worship be? You don't have to jump there. It's going to be on the screen. But in the book of Acts, there's a guy by the name of Stephen who's getting stoned by the Jewish council. Right as, a, right as he was about to die, this is what Stephen says in Acts 7, 48 to 50. It says, however, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or well, where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all of these things? God does not live in buildings, does not reside simply in buildings made by human hands. He doesn't live in structures made of wood or brick or stone. Jesus is like, I created all of this. Guys, I created all of this. And trust me, people have tried to create things that were big enough and grandiose enough and beautiful enough to be able to say, this is where God resides, right? Go to any cathedral in Europe and you're like, man, this is awe-inspiring. This is incredible. And they tried, but God, he created all of it. God's like, I, I appreciate your temple. I love this place of worship. I think God, God loves beauty and, and us crafting things with the hands that he gave us, with the minds that he gave us. I think God loves those things. But at the end of the day, God's like, have you seen Yosemite? Have you seen the things that I've created? You're going to try to shove me in a box and think that that's where it is that I'm going to resign? or reside rather, Paul talks about this same thing. 1 Corinthians 3.16, he says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? Did you catch it? Who, where, where is God's temple? Where is our place of worship? He says, do you know that you yourselves are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in your midst? Or Ephesians 2, in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. 
So Jesus here, Jesus introduces radical idea where people do not have to travel to a physical location to worship God. God's people are able to worship him in every single place. Why? Because the Holy Spirit dwells within us, is what scripture tells us. And therefore, God's people everywhere become the new temple where God dwells. Where the temple of God is, their worship should exist. So the question then becomes, how worshipful is God's temple in you? Now, don't get confused. Okay, this does not mean that attending church isn't important, because I think that's the natural outflow of this understanding. Of like, oh, well, the Spirit of God lives inside of me. Jesus, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and so because of that, I don't have to go to church on Sunday. I can worship him wherever I'm at. That is not true. I mean, yes, you can worship him wherever you're at, but not attending church is one of the single most important things that you... Attend church is what I'm trying to say. And we want to attend church, why? Because we are the body of believers, we're the body of Christ, and God has incredible things planned for us, things for us to be able to both widen and deepen his kingdom as a collective body. Jesus talks about this, being the body of Christ, that what's the eye going to say to the ear, right? All of us need our big toe. You don't have your big toe, you're simply going to fall over. Some of you are big toes, and we need big toes in the body of Christ. And that's great. That's a good positive thing, but don't get confused that because of the fact that you can worship anywhere that you don't need to attend somewhere, you need to make sure you are a part and plugged in to the body. That's my tangent. Let's back, jump back into John 4, specifically uh, at 22, because he says that the Jews worship what they know. And so Jesus here, he's acknowledging that salvation comes from the Jews. The whole Old Testament, which taught about salvation, was from the Jewish people. And the Messiah himself came from the Jews, not from the Samaritans. He didn't come from any, any other group. And so this was a truth that the Samaritans either didn't want to know about or did not know about or simply had ignored. So this leads to another aspect of worship, knowing the truth, understanding what the truth is. We have to know what is true in order to worship correctly. Why? Because truth is an important part of the whole dynamic of worship. Look at the next two verses. This is what it says in verse 23. Jesus says, Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. So let me read 23 again. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers, true worshipers, will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. What kind of worshipers the Father seek? People who worship in spirit and in truth. That's what this is saying. Jesus said the time was coming. The time is actually here when those who worship God are going to do it in both camps. At the same time. So the time had come where people needed to remove some of those old barriers to worshiping God, such as where they needed to be in order to worship him. God is seeking true worshipers to worship him. He created us, as a matter of fact, to worship him. You know that, like, like you want to know what the meaning of life is? You know why you're here? To worship God. That's why we're here. And we forget about that oftentimes, and automatically, a lot of you guys just went to the idea of like to worship God. That means just like sit around and sing all day. No, 
That's not what he's talking about here. We're supposed to worship God. How do we worship God? We glorify him with our lives. We make God look good and Christ well known. That's what true worship should look like. That's our purpose. And there's lots of different ideas about what worship looks like when a church gathers. Right? For instance, some churches focus so much on proclaiming the truth that they have very, very little to do with other aspects of worship. Some people, it's actually one of my favorite terms, some people call them the frozen chosen, right? Because nothing will move them to worship God except intellectualizing about God. So I'm going to open a book. I'm going to read from it. I'm going to go deeper in my theology. I'm going to open the Bible. I'm going to learn. I'm going to learn. I'm going to learn. I'm going to learn. And in our learning, we forget to worship. And I get it. Some of us are wired that way. I feel closest to God when I'm learning about who God is. I'm not trying to vilify that, but if all we do is worship God in truth and forget about the Spirit, we've got an issue. In the same vein, on the other hand, the other extreme, there's other churches who worship God only in spirit and forget about the idea of truth. They may have like the longest worship gatherings, right? When's church done? When we're done singing, Right? Some of you guys are like, nope, I can't set my schedule by that. That doesn't work for me. Um, but like really long worship gatherings, maybe like the most passionate display of praise, the loudest prayers of anyone on the planet, right? And just like it's full of spirit. And you're like, man, there's so much life here. There's so much life here. But apart from the truth, if they don't understand what it is they're worshiping or who it is they're worshiping, they might end up worshiping the wrong thing. And so we don't want to do that. And so one way I have heard this whole thing described is, is like this, where you have all truth and no spirit, the people tend to dry up. And where you have no, we have all spirit and no truth, the people tend to blow up. And when you have truth and spirit, the people tend to grow up. We need both truth and spirit. And so Jesus told the Samaritan woman that her worship lacked knowledge. A critical part, a critical aspect of genuine worship. If we do not know the truth, what God, what God has chosen to reveal to us, his special revelation in, in Scripture, we'll end up worshiping the wrong way or we'll end up worshiping the wrong things. Jesus also told the, the woman that God is spirit and not flesh. And so those who worship God are born again or born from the spirit, the Holy Spirit. Notice when it talks about in the spirit and in truth, that S is capitalized. That's not like just because you feel good. It's because it's, it's the Holy Spirit working in you. The Holy Spirit moves us to worship God in the Spirit. So it may be, considered our helpful, may be helpful to consider our spiritual worship linked to a passionate response to God. God made us emotional beings, Right? Therefore, our spiritual worship should be linked to our emotions. And I think oftentimes, specifically in churches like ours, where I think we lean further into the I'm going to worship in truth and I'm not going to worship as much in spirit side of things. And I can say that because you're Baptist and you're all scared to clap during songs. But we lean towards the truth side of things and not the spiritual side of things that we tend to forget that God create a, created us with emotions. And it's okay to show those emotions as we worship him and as we worship his son. It should be linked to us. We, but, but for a lot of us, we just think that we need to repress those feelings, that we want to control our reactions. I don't want to let anybody see what's going on inside of me. 
And churches have characterized certain emotions as acceptable and others as unacceptable. Worship without emotions allows us to keep God at arm's length and keep ourselves in control. Are you worshiping God with the truth of his word and by the moving of his spirit? Because both are needed. And to neglect one is to offer half-hearted worship. But the question then is, is why worship? What, what are we responding to in our worship? We're responding in our worship to the recognition of who Jesus actually is, right? Part of worshiping in truth is recognizing God for who he is, what he says, what he says he is. And we'll spend more time on this in the following weeks, acknowledging who God is and what he's done and all that stuff. But Jesus mentioned something at the close of this passage that indicates something about worshiping correctly. It points towards knowing who he actually is. The next verse is verses 25 and 26. It says, the woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. I love that verse because she has no clue. No clue that she's talking to the, the very person she is talking about. And in verse 26, then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I get chills every time I read verses like that, right? Even like I am or I am he or anything like that. I'm like, yes, he is. He absolutely is. This harkens back to verse 10 when Jesus tells the Samaritan woman that if, if she knew who he really was, she would have asked him for water and he would have given her living water. A person's deepest spiritual longing to know God personally is satisfied forever in Jesus Christ. The Samaritan woman needed to know that only Jesus could give her what it is that she was thirsting for. The Samaritan woman was a poor steward of her thirst. She was trying to, she was trying to quench that thirst in any way that she, could, that she could fathom, any way she could imagine. Spent most of her life running between broken cisterns that held no water. But Jesus offered the only water that would satisfy her. Jesus offers the only water that will satisfy us, the grace of the gospel. That's it. And so recognizing who Jesus is involves a response on our part. It should compel us to worship him. It should compel us to, to love him with our whole being, the totality of our being, knowing that Jesus, God in the flesh, willingly died so that you would not have to die. That should evoke love from our whole being. And we forget about that for some reason. We just think to ourselves oftentimes, yeah, yeah, Jesus saved me. And we forget that that, that, that that is the best news that we could ever fathom in our entire lives. And God, thank you for rescuing me from spiritual death. Thank you for sending your son on my behalf so I wouldn't have to, I wouldn't have to walk through it. In fact, that is indeed the heart of worship, a total attitude that directs our whole self to God. I'll wrap up shortly with this verse. It says, when there was an expert in the Jewish law, and he comes and he talks to Jesus, and he asks Jesus, Jesus, what's the most important commandment? You guys know this because it's written on our walls as you walk in to the lobby. But this is how Jesus answered. It's Mark chapter 12, verses 29 and 30. It says, Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Verse 30, and... You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Jesus says, you want to 
You know what one of the greatest commandments is? The greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with the totality of your being. So let me ask you a question this morning. And the question is, do you love the Lord your God with all of your heart? I think for most of us in this room, we're like, well, there's probably some space for some other stuff in there. Football's on today, so I got a little bit of space for football in my, in my heart. Or do you love the Lord your God with all of your soul? Probably not. Do you love the Lord your God with all of your mind? No. What about all of your strength? No, probably not. And so all of us are deficient in all four of those different areas. But God doesn't say just love the Lord your God with all of your heart. He says, I want you to love the Lord your God with the the totality of who you are, everything that you are. And we are still having an issue with like heart or mind or soul or strength. But Jesus says one of those things isn't enough. It's all of them wrapped together. The totality of worship involves the totality of our being. And so worshiping God by loving him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that's what worship is. Worship is an attitude of recognizing the infinite worth of God, the attitude of placing value on God with our whole being. It's not limited by location, right? But it's something we do wherever we are. It involves truth, knowing the truth about God and knowing the truth about ourselves. But it's not limited to just our mind, what we think about God or what we think about ourselves. But also how the spirit moves in us. Worship is ultimately about praising and loving Jesus as our Lord and Savior. All creation was made by him, created by him and through him and for him. So let us love him in all that we do and all that we are. That's worship. That's the good news. The question then becomes, what, like, like, like what would it look like if we as a church actually embodied worshiping in spirit and in truth, not just on a Sunday morning? But as we went about our days, as we sat at soccer games and we interacted with other parents, as we went to doctor's appointments and work phone calls and all of the different things that our busy schedules have, that what if instead of just like trying to fit God into like, well, maybe I can squeeze like a 30-minute 30 30 like meeting with someone in my small group at Starbucks in between dropping off my kids and before I have to do whatever errands you have to run. That instead of that, you didn't make God your top priority, but he's a part of every single one of your priorities. And I'm going to worship God as I drop off my kid. And I'm going to worship God as I meet with my small group friend. I'm going to worship God as I'm, as I'm running the errands that I have to run. I'm going to worship God as I'm sitting and cheering my kid on the sidelines. Which if that's the case, you probably shouldn't yell at the umpire as much as you do. Just saying. But what would it look like if we as a church look like that? Because that's what the church is supposed to be. The embodiment of a life well lived because our worship is not contingent on our circumstances, but our worship is contingent on who God is. The people in our oikos, our relational world, those 8 to 15 people that God placed into your lives would recognize that all we do, everything that we do is a representation of our posture of worship to God. And because of that, we should look different. So church, my charge to you this week is let's look different as we worship with the totality of our being. So what's going to happen is I'm going to invite the band out. And we're going to worship through song. I said it correctly. We're going to worship through song uh, this morning. We're going to pray first. We're going to do two songs at the end. And after that, 
we're going to dismiss. But I just want you to think about what that means in your life to worship both in spirit and in truth. Because I think it looks different than what oftentimes we assume that it would. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for this passage. Thank you for the woman at the well. That the, the depth of this story just continues to move. So thank you for that. And thank you for you being who you are, a person who deserves all of our worship and more, more than we could ever give. Our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. God, that you deserve all of it. And so God, I pray that we'd be willing to give it to you, that as we grow in depth of our knowledge of you, as we grow in the truth of understanding more and more about who you are, that we also wouldn't be hindered, that we wouldn't hinder the spirit by worshiping in such a way that it evokes our emotion as well. Because you tell us that both are true and we're emotional beings. You created us to be such. And why is it that we do this, Father? We do this because of what you did for us. That you are worthy, not just because you're a God, but because of the fact that you are willing to lay down the life of your son on our behalf so we didn't have to die a spiritual death. With heads still bowed and eyes still closed, if that's you this morning, that you have not yet acknowledged Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of the world, if that's you and you need to get right with Jesus before we begin to sing, you can simply pray along with me in the quietness of your heart. Say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, that I fall short every single day. But B, I believe that you sent your son to die on a cross for me. That he took that sin, he took that shame upon himself. That he was crucified, that he died, and he conquered death three days later so that we could see, choose to follow you every single day. And as we follow you, that should look like worshiping you with the totality of your being, with, of our being. We love you, Father. It's in your son's name that we pray.